Well, I think, we, uh, I think we'll get started then. We are going to deal, the Lord willing, today with, uh, I want to make a comment on the very end of chapter 15 and deal primarily this morning with um, the material that's in Genesis 16 and then um, probably not get all of it done, but get into chapter 17. In the end of chapter 15 is a very important but often neglected part of what is going on in these very significant chapters in Exodus that deal with Abraham. As you remember, our study now is on the patriarchs of ancient Israel, and really the patriarchs of faith, because this is how God establishes the messianic line, which will ultimately culminate in Jesus. We did not, we're not dealing with the first 11 chapters, but chapter 12 begins with Abraham, and then a little bit later we'll see Isaac, and very short, the Bible doesn't say a lot about him, uh, quite a bit of uh, material on Jacob, and then the last chapters, from 39 on, uh, are dealing with Joseph. And that answers the question, how does the clan of Jacob get down to Egypt? Why did they go down there, where they will be in slavery for 400 uh, years, as you know? Well, that's kind of what we're doing. And what is also true about these chapters, and that's the reason I chose to focus on it, is this establishes the covenantal language of the Bible. What we call, I shouldn't say what we call, what the Bible calls the Abrahamic covenant. I gave you a sheet on that, uh, both electronically, it's been sent out, and then those who are in the uh, building at Christ Community, I gave you a hard copy of that. And I draw your attention to that sheet. Uh, this, is the, this is what it looks like, but it's the one that has Abrahamic covenant across the top. You'll notice, and you should remember this, land, seed, and blessing. But it's that first one, land. That's what I want to focus on as we end chapter 15. Now let's do a, a real quick review. Chapter 14, um, Abraham, with 318 of his, of his servants, had gone up to Dan and rescued Lot, his nephew. He comes back. He pays a tithe to Melchizedek, a form of worship to God, for the tremendous victory. And in chapter 15, God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. And what is important in that chapter, which we reviewed last week, is verse 6. And he, meaning Abram, he believed the Lord... Yahweh, he believed the Lord, and it, he counted it to him as righteousness. I mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again. If you want to ask the question the way we talk today in the 21st century, when was Abraham saved? This is the place. This is the verse. Abraham keeps hearing God say this covenantal promise, and he believes it. It's a statement of his faith. And the consequence of that is God then declares him righteous. That little phrase, counted him as righteous, is a merchant term. It's uh, kind of like you add all, you add it all up, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is he has been declared righteous. The New Testament word for that is justification. And the Apostle Paul, in chapter 4 of the book of Romans, makes a great deal of this verse. As a matter of fact, in that chapter, chapter 4 of the book of Romans, he quotes this verse, Genesis 15, 6, four times. It's that important. So what God has done is he's reaffirmed this covenantal relationship with Abraham. And then, and we again, I want to review this because it's so important that this is really nailed down. He tells Abram to take a number of animals and to cut them in half. And then in the ancient Near Eastern world, when you made an agreement, a covenant, a treaty, a contract, whether it's business or political, whatever it is, you would cut a covenant. And you can understand where that comes from. And they, they would cut the animals apart. And then the two parties to the covenant would walk between, between them, stating in effect if we do not adhere to this covenantal promise, may what's happened to these animals happen to us. What is most important is that when you look at verse 17, the smoking fire pot and flamboyant torch or flaming torch, they are symbols of God. God is always associated with light, always associated with fire. And so God is in effect, as, as Abraham 
sees this and he's dreaming, he's in a deep sleep. God walks between the animals. Now, why is that important? Because it means God is binding himself to this covenant. It's unconditional and it's unilateral. Abram and God do not walk between the animals. God does. And that's why, that's why this is such a foundational covenant for the rest of the Bible, and I believe even today. But nonetheless, that, that foundational, unconditional, unilateral covenant that's binding on God, and the scriptures always beg this question, does God keep his promise? Well, the answer is always, of course, yes, he does. So that's a quick review, but I just wanted to make sure that is so clear. It's such an important and foundational part of the book of Genesis and indeed of God's word. Now, just a word about the end of the chapter. That is the end of chapter 15. Verse 18, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and of course, we just looked at it. To your offspring, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Let me stop there. Now, if you take that sheet I gave in the Abrahamic Covenant, the first part of the land, this is Genesis 12, 7, where it was first stated, Abram, get out of Mesopotamia, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants land. God doesn't tell him anything else. Here, God is very specific, and God establishes the boundaries. Now, there are several maps in your packet, and you can see it if you're really if you're really interested, but the, the Euphrates River is the northern river of the eastern Mediterranean River, uh, the eastern Mediterranean region. And the Euphrates today would be modern-day Iraq, and it goes up into to Turkey, actually. But anyway, it's modern-day Iraq. But the Euphrates River is a massive river, a huge river. That's the northern boundary of the land God promised to Abram and his descendants. Now, let me pose a question. Does the modern nation-state of Israel boundaries go to the Euphrates River? The answer is no. It does not. It only goes to the very edge of what is the country of Lebanon. It's miles and miles and miles away from the Euphrates River. So that covenantal promise was fulfilled in the history of Israel, but it is not fulfilled in the modern state of Israel. Will God reestablish Israeli control up to the Euphrates River. I would say, yes, he will, but that will come in the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The other thing about this is the other river. You notice at the beginning, from this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, the, the struggle here is where we're very specific, God is very specific, the Euphrates River, God is not specific here. The river of Egypt. What does that mean? Well, you know, and I know, if you look at any map of the world, the major river of Egypt is the Nile River, a massive river that rises way in Lake Victoria in the center of Africa and heads north. It's one of the few rivers on earth that starts in the south and flows toward the north, and it empties into the Mediterranean Sea. Some some expositors believe that this boundary is indeed the eastern edge of the Nile River. There is another possibility, though. There is a river. It's, it's really today in 2021. It's basically dried up 99% of the time. But you, it's, a, it's a wadi. It's a small river, a small brook. It's actually called the Wadi El Arish. Now, don't worry about that. I'm not expecting you to know that or remember that. It's just I want to show you that there is some dispute about that. The river Egypt, is it the Nile or is it this Wadi El Arish, which would be in today the edge of the Sinai Peninsula? So we don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of debate about this. There's no consensus on that. Whole articles have been written about each one. But God is establishing for Abram the boundaries to the land grant. He promised him, as part of the covenantal promise, land. God's now established the land boundary. The Euphrates is clear. 
But even if it's Wadi El Arish, that's very close to the border of modern-day Egypt today. So this is an extraordinary promise. And then in the next verse, verse 19, God just itemizes all of the Canaanite peoples. Canaanite, you always know the Canaanite groups because their name ends ites, I-T-E-S. And you can see the numbers, the Canaanites, Kenesites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. Each one of those you will meet in the book of Joshua during the conquest when Joshua, by the power of the Lord, is able to take all of these Canaanite regions, and then he divides the nation among the 12 tribes. Each one gets a land grant. So I wanted to make sure, I ran out of time last week, but I wanted to make sure that we were specific here in helping you to see that God now has taken that singular promise, Genesis 12, 7, has now added a ge geographical boundary to that promise. And it's basically, man, it's basically the entire Eastern Mediterranean world. That's what God promised to Abram. Was that fulfilled in history? It was during the kingdom of David and the kingdom of his son Solomon. Both of those kingdoms, the boundary of the northern boundary of David's empire was the Euphrates. The southern boundary of David's empire was Wadi El Arish, that kind of brook, that little, that little stream that's in the Sinai. So it's really fascinating to think about that in modern geopolitical issues. There is no way that modern-day Israel could be able to claim those boundaries. I believe when Christ returns, sets up his kingdom, these boundaries will be reestablished for the people of Israel. We ran out of time last week, so I just wanted to cover that. Are you with me? Are there any questions about that? I'm sorry we didn't get that uh, folded in last week. All right, your silence means understanding. Let's shift to chapter 16. If you want to know the origins of all of the problems in the Middle East in 2021, this is the chapter that answers that question. Here's where all the problems begin. This also is a chapter that illustrates did Abraham, did Abram, he's still called Abram, did Abraham trust God in his promise, his, God's promise, to give him a covenant son? Well, you want to say yes, but chapter 16 illustrates that Abraham's trust in God is affected by the lack of trust of his wife, Sarai. And what happens here is an enormous consequence to unbelief, an enormous consequence that still resonates today, 4,000 years later, in the modern period of the Middle East, with what happens in chapter 16. God said to Abraham, I promise you a covenant son. Sarai heard that promise. Immediately, verse 1, chapter 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne them no children. She was barren. Ab Sarai is in her 80s almost. By human standards, by any way in which you evaluate their situation, Sarai is in despair. She has no hope of ever being a mother. But God had promised this. We'll see in the chapters coming up how God fulfills that promise. So Sarai makes a decision. I'm barren. I'm old. I can't have children. So I'm going to help God along. I'm going to provide a solution. Still continuing in verse 1. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, that's important. Remember, Abram and Sarai, we read about that in a previous chapter, had gone down into Egypt 
during a period of famine, and remember he lied to the Pharaoh and said, this is my sister and all that stuff. Well, that's where she would have acquired this servant girl, Hagar. She's considerably younger. And so she says to her husband, Abram, verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, I don't know how else to say this, but her situation, she is blaming God for it. Now, at one level, although those words betray a degree of bitterness toward God, what she's saying is right. God did not allow her in his providence up to this point to have children, but she's blaming God. So you, now this is still Sarai speaking, the middle of verse 2, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And that phrase, go into my servant, means have sexual intercourse with my servant, Hagar. That's how I'm going to have children. What is amazing, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. There is no evidence that he prayed to God about this. There's no law, there's no evidence that he asked God if this was the right thing for him to do. God, is this how you're going to fulfill your covenant promise? There's none of that. So his wife doubts God's goodness, blames God for her condition, and says, I'm going to propose another way. You have sexual intercourse with Hagar, my Egyptian servant, then we'll have children. So Abraham listened, verse 3. So Abraham, after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, so, I mean, that's an important piece of information. From the time they left Egypt, coming back into the land, it's been 10 years. <clears throat> he took, Abraham, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abraham, her husband. Notice this phrase, as a wife. Now, what that means is, that in terms of Abram and in terms of Sarai, she now has the status no longer of a servant, but of a wife. Now, as you know, at least I think you know, in the ancient world, polygamy was a standard practice. It was very, very, very common for a man to have many wives. Now, Abram is doing this in violation of the creation ordinance of God in Genesis 2. He is not doing this in obedience to God. He hasn't talked to God about this. He hasn't sought God's wisdom on this. But what is important is that Hagar's status is no longer slave. She's the wife of the master of this clan, the wife of the head of this clan the wife of Abram. Verse 4, he went into Hagar, again, a euphemism for sexual intercourse, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she, Hagar, looked with contempt on her mistress, meaning Sarai, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you, I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. <laughs> now, I hope you follow this. It's quite remarkable, actually. Now, Sarah is turning the whole thing around and blaming Abram and saying, you fix this. I mean, what is a very practical lesson we can draw from this? If you don't follow God's creation ordinance when it comes to marriage, don't expect him to bless it. When you don't follow God's ordinance in his creation ordinance on marriage, expect dysfunction, expect jealousy, expect interpersonal conflict between your wives and between the children of your wives. We will see this later on in our study, well after our Christmas break, when we get to Jacob.
but I'll save that for then. But this is an illustration. Abram was not following what God wanted him to do. Now he's going to have to live with the consequences. So Hagar, because she did conceive and is now pregnant, is in effect saying, as one of Abram's wives, remember she was elevated to the status of wife now, is saying, and just imagine, can you, you can picture this. Oh, Sarah, I'm better than you are. I got pregnant. Ha, 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 you didn't. That's in back of that with contempt. She is, she is taking that position, Sarah, I'm really better. And you know what? I'm a better wife to Abram than you are. I, I can give him what you can't give him, an heir, a son. And so when this interpersonal breakdown and conflict between these wives develops, Sarah, who wants to reassert her preeminent position, says, Abram, you handle this. And it's between you and the Lord. May the Lord judge you if you don't take care of this. Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. You do as you please. What did Abram just do? He diminished Hagar. She's no longer my wife. She's your servant. You do what you want to do with her. I'm not going to deal with it. You deal with it. So again, I mean, <laughs> this is a remarkable turn of events for poor Hagar. I'm not trying to absolve her of any responsibility for this mess, because she's the one who's saying she's better than Sarah. But the, the absolutely catastrophic results if you don't adhere to God's creation ordinance. And now everybody's living with the consequences. So what does Sarai do? She dealt harshly with her, verse 7, and she, that is Hagar, fled from her, that is Sarai. So now you, you have this <laughs> quite astonishing development. Abram's heir, his son, whom Hagar is now bearing, is going to leave the clan. And Abram's all right with that. He doesn't want to deal with it. So she's on the run. She is Hagar on the run. Now, what is going to happen in the next paragraph is the incredible grace of God and how he is going to take care of Hagar. But before we get into that, you have the problem, Sarai, cannot have children. She's barren. You have the human solution. I'll give Abram my servant that I acquired when I was in Egypt. And the consequence is catastrophe. And the solution is I'm booting Hagar out of the clan. And that's what happens. All right. Any questions? You, you with me on that? Hey, Jim. So uh, is the consequences is that something like we're all paying for indirectly or I am not sure I'm understanding your your question, uh, Fidel. Would, yeah, like you, yeah, like you said, uh, the consequences uh, for Abraham, you know, yes. not praying and then not going to God and then just going along with Sarah. So yes. they made that decision. There's consequences there. Are those indirect consequences that we all pay for in the end or? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there were there are two things. I, I, I tried to draw out the one. that This is an illustration, and there are just dozens of these illustrations throughout the Old Testament. When a couple or an individual does not follow God's creation ordinance on marriage, which is in Genesis 2, which, as you remember, God performs the first marriage ceremony between Adam and Eve, he declares that you know, this is a one flesh union, man and a woman, he created them, all of that. That heterosexual, clear, monogamous marriage relationship, which God establishes at creation, when a, a husband or a, a husband and wife or a family chooses not to follow that, there are no good consequences ever in the Bible of a, of a man having more than one wife. There are no good consequences of that. 
And so that's an important application for us in 2021. The second, which I did not specifically do it with, but the second application is this is a momentous decision in Abram's life. God's made a promise to him, you're going to have a covenant son. And when Sarai, his wife, comes and proposes this as a solution, he immediately, it would seem to me, he immediately should have gone to God and asked God's counsel on this. Should I do this? There's the total absence of that. And so I think, again, it, one of the important applications of this for, for you and me in 2021 is in, as we are facing a major decision in life, when, when a major crossroad, a major issue, the very first, the default response should always be, we go to God. Lord, is this, is this a wise thing for me to do? Is this, is this, help me to see, give me your wisdom, give me your discernment, because I, it, it doesn't seem right, but I want you to help me to confirm this is not the right path for me to go. All of that is absent here in, in Abram's life. We don't see any of this. And now he is going to have to live with the consequences. Sarah is going to have to live with the consequences. And tragically, so is Hagar, as you will see in just a minute. Does that sort of get it, uh, the question? Yes, sir. So, like, Hagar didn't have much choice in that? I mean, I don't want to get too no, she crazy with it. Hagar did not have a choice in that. Okay. I mean, she was the servant. But if you want to extend it, she understandably, you can see why she felt superior when it says there twice that uses that word, she treated Sarai with contempt. Um, well, you okay. can understand why. I mean, she, she's pregnant and Sarai isn't. <laughs> right. But she had no right to do that. And that, of course, is what gets her into trouble in, in, the, in the relationship with her husband, in her, uh, with Abram, in relationship with Sarah. And she, she's booted out of the clan. Let's go to verse 7 then. Now, Hagar is, if we're going to learn here in, in, in verse 7, she is, she is on her way to Shur. You see that the last word in verse, uh, uh, verse 7. S-H-U-R, Shur, is an ancient name for Egypt. And so you'll see that in a number of places in the Bible. Whenever you see the word Shur, S-H-U-R, that's always a reference to ancient Egypt. So what's Hagar doing? She's headed back home. She came from Egypt. She was brought by Sarai back to Canaan when, when they came back after being in Egypt. Now she's going back home. So that makes sense why she's doing that. But notice, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, if you do things like this and you're interested, on the map in the packet I gave you, this on page 19, it shows you where approximately where the angel of the Lord meets Hagar. And you can see it's along that international highway, that road that goes along the sea, to be the Mediterranean Sea. And so she is now, now I want to comment on that, that title, that label, the angel of the Lord. I want you to notice the definite article, the angel of the Lord. Now, that title is used numerous places throughout the Old Testament. It is used, for example, in Judges 6, when Gideon meets the angel of the Lord. Then Gideon, after uh, their conversation and instruction and everything he gives to Gideon, he worships him. He, he performs sacrifices. What does that tell you? The angel of the Lord must be a manifestation of God. When Joshua is about to conquer Jericho, and he looks at that immensely powerful walled city. How am I going to conquer that? The angel of the Lord appears to him. And after he gets the instructions, he bows down and worships him. Now, I could go on and on. There are many instances like this in the Old Testament. So almost all expositors agree the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Now, pre-incarnate means before the incarnation, what we're going to celebrate next Saturday at Christmas. So the angel of the Lord is a manifestation and appearance of God. So that tells us something. God cares what happens to Hagar. Sarai dismissed her, kicked her out of the clan. 
God cares for her. She is important to God. And so what happens here? There's going to be a conversation, and there's going to be a promise, the conversation. And he said, Hagar, I'm in verse 8, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? Does that mean he doesn't know? God doesn't know? No, he's probing. He wants her to admit what's happened. She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Is that an easy command to obey? Hardly. But to motivate her to obey God makes a promise. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord. This is the third time the angel of the Lord is repeated. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, third, fourth time that's mentioned, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael is Hebrew. El is a name for God. Ishmael is God hears. That's what it means. So God is making a promise to her. And that promise to her is that her offspring, Ishmael, will have many, 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 many descendants. As a matter of fact, we will study this much, much later in the class. He is going to have 12 sons. Just like Jacob has 12 sons, Ishmael will have 12 sons, which become 12 tribes, which is the origin of the various Arab groups that will inhabit the Middle East. And that's why I said, if you want to know the origin of the conflict that we see still manifested 2021 in the Middle East, Arab versus Israeli, this is where it starts. Abram's disobedience, his unwillingness to trust, and listening to his wife Sarai causes a monumental issue of division in the Middle East, and both the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Israel, Israel becomes the covenant name of Jacob, will claim this land. Which one has the right to claim the land? The children of Israel, of Jacob, because God made that promise. Genesis 12, 7, and the specific boundaries we just read at the end of chapter 15. So, God is taking care of Hagar. He's making a promise to Hagar. And because of that promise, she is motivated then to go back to Sarai. But then God says one more thing. It's in verse 12. He shall be, he would be her son, Ishmael. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, let's distill that down to a couple of statements. Ishmael and all his descendants will foster hostility, tension, and strife. I will repeat that. A wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael and his descendants will be known for hostility, tension, and strife. And men, I'm, I'm telling you, in the 4,000 years of the history of the descendants of Ishmael up until today in 2021, that is precisely and exactly what the descendants of Ishmael have been like. And you see that 
in the Middle East today. The various Arab tribes and clans don't get along with one another. Look at modern-day Iraq. You have the Kurds, you have the Sunnis, you have the Shiites, and they all fight each other, and they're all part of the same ethnic background. And it's just, this is going to be the consequence. And this group of descendants of Ishmael will continually contend with the descendants of Jacob in seeking to control the same land, the land of promise. And that is why when the modern state of Israel was created in 1948, that hostility between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Israel reached a boiling point. And it has remained at that with brief, intermittent times when things settle down. And today it's been being fed by the, the arrogant support of, of Iran, supporting Hamas and Hezbollah and all that. I could go through all that, but you're all somewhat familiar with it. So this chapter, chapter 16, is an extraordinarily important chapter in understanding one of the sources of the mess in the Middle East. Here is where it begins. So just let me quickly finish this. So verse 213, she called in the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Where she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. God has cared for her. Then, therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Hroy. It's between Kadesh and Bered. Again, on the map you can see that. But she names the place because she had been with God. And Hagar bore a son, excuse me, and Hagar bore Abram a son, in verse 15. Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 86. I'm going to ask you a sidebar question. How much longer is Abram going to have to wait for Isaac? He's 86. 14 more years. When, Ab when Isaac is born, Abram will be 100 years old. So he's got 14 more years to trust that God's going to keep his word. He has seen the failure of not trusting God, that God will keep his word. He has a son, Ishmael, but it's not the covenant son. It's not the son through whom God is going to pour his covenant blessings. And we already briefly talked about the, the uh, consequences that will result from that, in effect, not trusting God. All right. Now, I can't believe it's, we're done with chapter 16. Are there any questions about chapter 16? I tried to make it very relevant for us today. I, I hope I succeeded. Okay. All right, as I often say, your silence means complete understanding. So that's that's the assumption I'm going to make. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yep, chapter 17. Here's another illustration of the grace of God, but it's another illustration of how important this covenantal relationship between Yahweh Elohim and Abram is. God is going to establish a sign of this covenant. He is going to establish a covenantal sign that every generation that follows Abram is supposed to observe. That sign is the sign of circumcision. Now, what I'd like to do very briefly, if you and if you don't, it's fine. But if you take that other sheet that I gave you on the covenants, this one has at the top the biblical covenants. Uh, you had, you've received an electronic copy of it, and if you were in the, in the room last week, I gave you a hard copy of it. But I want to I comment on something here, if I could. If you look at those covenants, each one of those covenants, we're going to start on the left-hand side, and we're going to go across the right-hand side. Each one of those covenants has a sign. Because a covenant is un undoubtedly, that's not hard. You know a covenant is a promise. It's an agreement. It's a binding agreement. 
And so the first one is the Noahic covenant. Now, you remember what that is. In Genesis 6 through 9, God sends a flood. Noah and his family get off the ark, uh, and the animals get off the ark, and so on. And then God has a conversation with Noah and says, Noah, I am never going to judge the earth with a universal flood again. I'm never going to do that. And I'm going to give you a sign, and that sign is a rainbow. So every time you see a rainbow, it is a reminder that God made a promise to the human race. He would never destroy planet Earth with a universal flood like he did in Genesis 6. Our house faces to the east. And during the summer months, it may happen today because we're in summer weather. We're going to have a thunderstorm later this afternoon, apparently. But anyway, depending on where the sun is and so on, when we look to the east and the, storm, the sun is to the west in the later evening and it comes, we can see a rainbow across the, the homes that are to the east of our house. And every time, Peggy loved to see that. Every time she looks out and says, there's God's promise. He will never destroy the earth with a universal flood. That's the sign. And that's what is stipulated there in Genesis 9. Let your eye go farther now to the right. We're going from left to right to the Abrahamic covenant. We just are about, I just stated, and we're going to learn more about in a minute, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. Every Jewish boy, when he's eight days old, is to be circumcised. Now, as you will know, and perhaps you already wrote, that was not unique. There were many people in the ancient world, not all, but many people in the ancient world that circumcised. That circumcised. But God is assigning a very significant covenant dimension to that. It's the sign of the covenant. Let your eye go farther to the right, and you got to look in that box, the law, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant. What was the sign of the Mosaic covenant? What's the sign of the law? Answer, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant, sign of the law. Then let your eye go a little bit south of that, a little bit below that, the Davidic covenant. The sign of the Davidic covenant is the throne. God promises to David a, an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. And then finally, the covenant that's called the New Covenant, that's language out of Jeremiah 21, 31, and Ezekiel 36, 37, and it's all over the New Testament. The sign of the New Covenant is the Holy Spirit. So each one of these covenants that God makes has a sign to it. And that sign, every time you practice it or you see it or you observe it, it is to remind you of your covenantal relationship with the living God. That's what God is going to do here. Am God Almighty. Now, that is a title for God. If you would read Hebrew, it would be I am El Shaddai. That's the Hebrew for God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me. Be blameless. So, what you have. What you have here is God is just establishing, Abram, walk with me. Walk before me. Walk in dependence on me and be blameless. Now, that I read from the ESV translation. That Hebrew word that they're translating as blameless doesn't mean perfect. I mean, it's not absolute perfection. What it's talking about is your walk with me is blameless. All, all of your sin is taken care of. How does that happen? Because he believed God. Genesis 15, 6, he has been justified. Abram, walk with me according to your position. Walk with me according to your status that I've established because you believed me. Genesis 15, 6. I want to make my covenant between me and you, multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram. Your name shall be Abraham. God does this a lot. 
he gives his people covenant names. Your covenant name and my covenant name is Christian. Christian comes from a word which means little Christs. We have a new title. We're Christians. And so he is now called not Abram, which means elevated or exalted father. You're Abraham, which means father of many, father of a multitude, father of a huge number of descendants. So now Abram has had his name changed, which reflects the covenant. Three promises, land, seed, and blessing. We saw at the end of chapter 15, the land promise explained and the boundaries detailed and laid out. This is now that promise of seed, of descendants. And God is so into this, so committed to this, that he changes his name. It's now Abraham, the father of a multitude. In Genesis 30... I have a question. Um, I'm sorry, Woody. What was that? Yeah, I have a question. Please. Um, so if Abraham is righteous... Yes. Without knowing about Jesus Christ, uh, to believe in Jesus Christ and have eternal life, uh, Abraham will still have eternal life. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, okay, now you're two parts. He, he, did you say he did not believe in Christ or he did believe in Christ? I didn't quite hear what you said. I tried to turn uh, this off. He, he was way before Christ, wasn't he? That's correct. That's so correct. He wouldn't know about Christ, I don't think, unless God told him. That's correct. So what, what did he believe? What's the content of his belief? That God will keep his promises of land, of seed, and of blessing. And he believed what God was saying. And he believed that through him all the nations will be blessed. He believed, and God said, okay, your faith, your faith and trust in me is what results in you being declared righteous by me. And so it's that kind. Now, as a part of that, there is a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is a blood sacrifice, which atones for sin. So Abraham understood as well that God is taking care of his sin problem through the shed blood of, of those animals and so on. So what Abraham is believing, um, Woody, is what God had told him, what God had promised to him. And he believed that, and God said, you believed it. You've been declared righteous. Thank you. All right, what time is it here? Okay, we got about 10 more minutes yet. God does this, and, and we'll get to this after Christmas, well, probably in March sometime, but when we get to Genesis 32 in the life of Jacob, Jacob is coming back into the Holy Land after being away and all that, and he wrestles with God, and God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. That's why his descendants are called the children of Israel. He gets a new covenant name. Now, I'm saying all that because God does this for, for I think, a specific reason. Because every time now, Abram is now called Abraham, it is another tactile, objective piece of evidence of the covenant. Just like God defined the boundaries that we read at the end of chapter 15, clear. I mean, Abraham could see that. He saw where those boundaries, he had traveled those boundaries. He knows what God was saying. Now God is saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you additional evidence that I'm going to keep this promise of descendants that will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your name's now Abraham, father of a multitude. And God continues, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And what's that last phrase? For an everlasting covenant. If you do things like that in your Bible, you're underline that, or star it, or take a yellow highlighter to it, or something. 
God is going to repeat this over and over and over again. This is an everlasting covenant. When God says that, bank on it. He's going to keep his promise to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after the land of of your surroundings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So God is combining now two promises, a multitude of descendants from Abraham and reaffirming that land promise. Look at that chart I gave you of the covenant. You have two aspects of the covenant now reaffirmed. I mean, this is extraordinary for Abraham. Now I start calling him Abraham. Because God is just giving him, and keep, God keeps reiterating. God keeps reemphasizing. God keeps stressing it. Even as Abram has these lapses of faith, God keeps saying, I've made this promise. And now God is making it crystal clear. This is an everlasting covenant. It's unconditional. Think of the cutting of the covenant, which we studied in chapter 15. It is a unilateral covenant. Think of the cutting of the covenant we studied in Genesis 15. Now you add a third adjective. It's an everlasting covenant. If you are a Jew in 2021, you keep thinking, is God going to keep the promise? that he made to Abraham 4,000 years ago? Am I a part of that? The answer to that is yes. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic characterization using very clear words, unconditional, unilateral, everlasting, of how God looks at that covenant. And so for you and me today, this is why, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, but this is why the return of Jesus Christ and the setting up of his kingdom is so important. Well, God, where God will fulfill to the Jewish people who are living at that time these promises forever, they will now be his people. They will walk with him in love and obedience. They haven't done that, as you know. Okay, now that, that point of that emphasis is everlasting. Now, I've got about seven minutes, so let me try to deal with this sign. And then next, uh, after Christmas, we'll deal with Isaac being born and so on. Verse 9, chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout the generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Underline that. A sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, every time a Jewish boy is circumcised when he's eight days old, that is to remind his parents, remind everyone in the synagogue, remind everyone in the neighborhood of the covenant God has made with his people. Now, it's interesting, and this is a question. I don't think I have to explain circumcision to you. I think you know what it is, but I'm not going to explain it medically. But it's interesting that, and it's, it's fascinating. I've been asked this question. Of all of the things that God could have done, of all of the parts of the body that God could choose, why did he choose the male sexual organ. Why did he choose the male phallus? Why did he choose that unique aspect of what it means to be a male? Because that is the key to offspring. That is the key to children. That is the key to what God had promised to Abram multitudes of descendants, as numerous as the stars, the sky, and the sand, and the seashore, that male organ is the symbol of regeneration, the the symbol of fertility, the symbol of blessing. Abraham, you will have children and grandchildren 
and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren and then as many greats as you can possibly attach. Abram, that is the promise. And every time a boy reaches eight days old, you take that male organ and you circumcise it. And it is a reminder of my covenant promise of fertility and abundance and blessing to my people in this unconditional, unilateral, everlasting covenant. And so this then becomes, and you read in the Levitical Code, you read in, in Moses, you read in Joshua, as they have come into the land, are ready to fight the Battle of Jericho, and God says, you are not ready to fight. Your men are not circumcised, which tells us during the wilderness wanderings, many of the Jewish families didn't circumcise their boys. And before they're going to fight the Battle of Jericho, they've got to be circumcised. Can you think of anything more debilitating to a group of soldiers than have to be circumcised? But that's the covenant sign. And look at the end of verse 13. So shall my covenant in be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. And an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. To be circumcised is to have the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. To not be circumcised means you're not in the covenant community. And so God is now, as he's done, I mentioned this by looking at that chart I gave you, Every covenant promise God makes, and there are major, five major ones, it has a sign to it. Here is the sign. It's circumcision. And as I said in about fifth time, every time a Jewish boy, when he's eight days old, is circumcised, that is to be a reminder. God is in an unconditional, unilateral, everlasting covenant with us. And among those covenant promises is Children of Abraham, as numerous as the stars of the sky. So it's a fantastic illustration of what God is doing. Let me make one more comment. God is very much into memorials, very much into, into object lessons, very much into almost, you could say, symbols. That's what communion is all about. Every time you've taken the bread in the cup, it's to remind you what Jesus did. And you see, as you know, Israel conquers the land, God tells them to set up monuments to remember. This is what, if your children ask, Daddy, why is this here? This is what God did for us at the Battle of Ai and Jericho. God, it's a reminder. It's a reminder. God's a God of keeping his word, a God of promise. And so Abram now is at that point in his life, 100 years old. He's going to get the covenant son that God promised him 25 years ago. When God made that initial promise, Abram and Sarah had to wait 25 years for God to fulfill that promise. God built his faith. He strengthened his faith. He stretched his faith. Abram stumbled a couple of times, but he remained committed to what God had told him. Now God is about to fulfill the promise. And we'll read about that fulfillment after our Christmas break. Got it? Yes, sir. Okay? Yes, sir. All right, men, listen, it's, uh, I'm going to have to quit here. My other class is still holding the class, so I'm going to have to get to that class. So, listen, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas and have a, a blessed time with family and friends. And Remember, in all the celebration and all the music and all the wonderful things, and you have my permission to eat as much as you want, not that that matters. Remember, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him and his incarnation coming to begin the rescue plan of winning us back, of paying the price for our sin and being resurrected in power. The Father accepted that. And we put our faith in him. We're in his family. So welcome all you guys. You're in our family. You're part of the family of God. We love you, and I pray you have a wonderful Christmas break, and God bless all of you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for our time. We, we have just went through um, these, these couple of chapters, some of the most important chapters in the Bible. They really are incredibly valuable. The rest of the Bible relies on what happened to Abram in these chapters. The unconditional, unilateral, everlasting covenant 
which God just keeps repeating over and over and over and over again. And we learn that every covenant arrangement God establishes, he always has a sign to it. It's a, a visible, tactile sign that God's going to keep this promise. And so I just uh, help us, Lord, to remember that the sign of the new covenant is that Holy Spirit who indwells us. He, we, we draw on his strength. We draw on his power as we yield to him and allow him to be as a representative of Jesus Christ, the Lord of our lives. The energizing power and so to be filled with him affects our relationships, affects our worship, it affects our marriages, it affects everything we do, because we now are empowered by and will see the fruit of that spirit. We are part of that wonderful covenant relationship with God, and all the promises that he's made to us are centered on Jesus. And what my favorite promise is, you promised to come back for us, and we look forward to that. And so we echo on this Christmas season, the prayer of the early church, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come back for us. So be with these men. Help them to have a blessed Christmas, a special time, remembrance with their families. And we commit each one of them to you in Christ's name.